I'm Shannon Green, and you're listening to On Extremism, a podcast that takes a deep dive into the causes, manifestations, and responses to one of the most important issues of our time. In this series, we'll talk to top experts, policymakers, and practitioners to understand how we can better counter violent extremism around the world. Our podcast is made possible by the CSIS Commission on Countering Violent Extremism, chaired by former British Prime Minister Tony Blair and former U.S. Secretary of Defense Leon Panetta. For more information on the commission, please visit www.csis.org. I'm really excited to introduce today's guest, Andrew Shearer, CSIS's Senior Advisor on Asia-Pacific Security. Mr. Shearer was previously National Security Advisor to Prime Ministers John Howard and Tony Abbott of Australia, playing a leading role in formulating and implementing Australian foreign, defense, and counterterrorism policies. Andrew, I'm so glad you could join us. It's great to be here, Shannon. Great. Well, why don't we just start by talking about your experience um, being the National Security Advisor and what were the kind of threats that Australia faced and... You know, what's the general approach that Australia took to address those threats? Australia's been in the the crosshairs when it comes to international terrorism, unfortunately, for for several decades now, much like the United States, I guess. And my experience uh, as National Security Advisor in Australia was that this was the overriding issue that, if you like, kept me up at night. Um, We in the last couple of years in Australia, have experienced three actual terrorist attacks. Probably the highest profile one was the the siege in Martin Place in Sydney, which unfortunately resulted in uh, a couple of innocent hostages being killed, uh, and something like 10 major disruptions of, of attacks. And Today, I think something like 200 people are under active investigation for various forms of support to terrorism in Australia. So this threat was very real and very immediate and uh, was not terribly long after Prime Minister Abbott took office that, um, uh, that he called for a comprehensive strategy to deal with foreign fighters and the threat they posed to Australia and also... Uh, while he was Prime Minister, we put the National Terrorism Threat Alert up to high for the first time in, I think, over a decade. So it was a very intense focus on, on terrorism and, unfortunately, continues today where um, just a few days ago ISIL made some very direct, very detailed threats against Australia calling for lone wolf, unsophisticated attacks against Australians and some of our iconic landmarks like the Sydney Opera House and the Melbourne Cricket Ground and even calling on terrorists to attack everyday Australians in their backyard. So it's real, it's imminent and unfortunately I think it's going to get worse. So we've seen a similar evolution in terms of the types of threats in the United States, you know, starting with 9-11, which you think of as this sort of massive complex attack planned by a centralized organization abroad to the kinds of situations that we saw with Omar Mateen in Orlando. Have you seen a similar evolution in the nature of the threat, the kinds of people who are executing attacks, 
where they draw their inspiration from or the tactics that they're using in Australia? I think the trends are similar. So the traditional threat, if you like, posed by al-Qaeda has dropped a little into the background, but we know they're still out there. They've they've taken a lot of hits in terms of their leadership and their ability to uh, find safe haven and, and plan and conduct major attacks, but they're still out there and they still... Uh, they still would very much like to to cause those massive, disruptive, destructive attacks. And if anything, I think what we're seeing now is something of a competitive dynamic among these different terrorist groups where they're vying to outdo each other in terms of the chaos and the carnage they can cause. So that's a very serious concern. We've, we've seen, um, as well as the the phenomenon of Australians going off to fight in Syria and Iraq, something like 200 have gone. Uh, We've seen homegrown terrorism in Australia, people who are radicalised in very little time, either online or through exposure to hate preachers. The online uh, sort of recruitment, I guess, of these people has happened, I think, a bit the way that online sexual predators groom their potential victims. And this is something that we started to give a lot of attention to uh, when I was in the government. And what we found is that the trend is that people are radicalising much faster, now potentially down to just a handful of days, uh, that they're radicalising younger. So we, uh, we have had a couple of cases involving 14, 15-year-olds, um, we've had a couple of attacks involving 17-year-olds, including one who murdered a uh, civilian police worker in Sydney in the street. Uh, that's a very, very worrying trend, obviously. We've seen more women become involved uh, and radicalised. And we're seeing people from a variety of backgrounds, um, including people from Anglo-Saxon backgrounds in Australia who are converting and radicalising very quickly. So I think the trends are different. They manifest a little differently. And I guess the other challenge I'd point to for Australia in particular is is the threat in Southeast Asia. More Australians have died in terrorist attacks in Southeast Asia than they have anywhere else. So this is something that is very much in our minds, particularly, of course, the, the horrific Bali bombings, um, and with somewhere between 500 and 800 Southeast Asian people off fighting in the Middle East at the moment, that's a real concern because the risk, of course, is that even as coalition military forces make progress in Iraq and Syria against them, uh, there's encouragement for people to leave the, the combat zone there and return uh, to their homes or else return to other terrorist groups in the region who we know are affiliated with ISIL. And the danger there, of course, is that this crop of foreign fighters and potential terrorists will be better trained than the previous uh, fighters, who many of whom joined, joined Jamaa Islamia a decade or two ago. Uh, and we know that they're better networked and they have better tradecraft in the sense that they're much better at using secure communications and so forth. So when you add all of that up, that I think points to a very serious uh, terrorist resurgence threat in Southeast Asia. And that's troubling for all of us, but 
particularly troubling for, for Australia. Well, so let's unpack that a little bit. I mean, you've described a threat that is very complex, that's constantly evolving, and in many ways is becoming more dangerous. So how has Australia approached addressing that threat, whether it be using law enforcement techniques or intelligence or what we you know, deem sort of the softer interventions under the rubric of CVE? I think the first and most fundamental point is facing up to the threat and recognising it for what it is and calling it what it is. Um, you know, that's that's the first step. And I think, to be fair, when we put the terrorism threat alert up and when we introduce some much more robust security measures around Parliament House in Canberra, for example, there was a degree of scepticism uh, in the community, in the media, uh, about those measures. In the case of the Parliament House security upgrade, um, that scepticism, of course, very quickly vanished when there was that terrible attack on the Parliament in, in Canada. And I think that the Australian community uh, understands the, the problem. Uh, there's clearly anxiety about the threat in the community but I think uh, by putting in place a comprehensive suite of policies and strategies, it is possible to reassure the community and, and tell them that everything that can be done is being done without tipping the balance too far and creating an unrealistic expectation because the nature of these threats, the complexity the sophistication of some of the techniques and tactics that they use means that inevitably some of these attacks are going to get through. Um, as I said, we had three attacks. We managed to disrupt another 10, and this is just going to be ongoing. So I think uh, one of the, the key things that we did was put in place a, a very comprehensive set of new counterterrorism laws because you need community engagement, you need uh, techniques for countering violent extremism in the community, but you also need strong law enforcement and strong security measures, and the community expects that. After all, government's highest responsibility, foremost responsibility, is keeping keeping the community safe. So we brought in, I think, four different sets of new counterterrorism laws. They range from a, uh, a data retention regime, which is very important for uh, being able to to retain the the metadata that agencies need to be able to find patterns and ultimately identify uh, terrorist cells uh, within the country, and also their links to potentially to terrorist networks offshore. We brought in um, new laws that uh, increased sentences. We created new offences around supporting terrorism and. We reduce some of the evidentiary thresholds because one of the, the, the real challenges in this area is that um, the nature of the offences and the, the nature of the information is often such that it's very hard to get prosecutions. And then related to that, we face the challenge that because these uh, people can be radicalised so quickly and because the distance or rather the time between planning a terrorist attack and actually executing the attack has been becoming shorter and shorter, what we've found is that often our agencies will have to intervene to preempt an attack 
because after all, stopping people being killed or injured in a terrorist attack has to take priority over gaining evidence. But what that can mean is that sometimes the authorities have to intervene uh, before a, a, a robust evidentiary brief has been developed and then you're in the situation that you've got someone who you're pretty damn sure uh, has terrorist intentions but who you can't who you can't satisfactorily charge convict and and put away in jail and for that reason Australia's developed a, a robust set of uh, control orders which can put constraints around uh, people um, in certain circumstances regarding their freedom of movement, the communications measures they can use, their ability to associate with certain people or certain groups or attend certain uh, certain places. So that's that's another sort of layer in this set of set of defences. We've, I think, uh, significantly improved our sort of internal coordination arrangements in Australia. So there's stronger cooperation between the Commonwealth and the states. And both those levels of government have important roles in counter-terrorism. We've uh, we've upgraded our our countering violent extremism programs. We've uh, now got in place a very robust set of laws for cancelling passports. So Australia has now cancelled something like two hundred passports uh, from people who are suspected to be planning to go and join. Um, ISIL or al-Nusra or other groups fighting overseas. That creates its own challenges because very often after you've cancelled someone's passport, they change their plans and instead of conducting terrorist activities offshore, they start planning to do them onshore. But we in the government had a very strong sense that it was our responsibility if we knew that people had harboured malign intentions to to deal with them and um, uh, and take responsibility for them in Australia rather than just sort of shooing them out the door to to get up to whatever mayhem they they chose offshore so let's talk a second about the passport um, cancellation and also the control orders because I'm guessing that it wasn't a non-controversial um, topic within Australia. Reflecting on our own experience in the U.S., a lot of the concern about CVE has been about civil liberties or about constraints that might be put on the way that people think um, and the way that they express themselves. How did those issues play out in the Australian context? There's always got to be a balance between um, law enforcement and, and civil liberties, and different societies will find that level uh, according to their own their own history their own their own traditions i think there's a there's a bit of a difference here i mean often we we assume and i think we're right that australia and the united states are, are very similar countries and we have a lot of shared values and a lot of shared history that's that's all definitely true but i think this is an area where there are some some differences and uh, I would say that Australians are a little more prepared to accept reasonable constraints on some of their freedoms in return for for national security. And in that sense, I think we probably follow a bit more the British model and our our institutional arrangements, for example, are, are more or less British. And we have a, unlike the United States, we have a security intelligence organisation, which is like 
MI5, based on MI5. Uh, so, so, and our, of course, we have the the common law and that that whole sort of tradition. So, in that sense, um, I think there are there are some differences. But the government still has to bring the community with it, and ultimately, uh, I think there are two tests. You know, for these laws, the first test is whether they're effective, and the second test is whether they're reasonable. If you like whether they pass the, the pub test, as we'd say in Australia. <laughs> and, um, you know, so far I think, I think we've got the, the mix about right. But one thing we have found is that because the nature of the threat changes so dynamically, the law is always a step or risks being a step behind and therefore you're always adapting. Um, and the government has... Um, before the parliament, I think two new sets of laws, uh, including one which is about being able to detain uh, people in certain circumstances who haven't been convicted of a terrorist offence, going back to my earlier point about evidentiary issues. And that is seen as a kind of major gap in, in the existing arrangements. And the fact that we're looking so seriously at that tells you how people regard the threat. And unfortunately, just going back to the age of some of these people, we've had to bring the the qualifying age for control orders right down as low as around 14, I think, at the moment, which um, as, a, as a parent, um, I just find incomprehensible. So let's, um, let's return to the issue of foreign fighters, which is one of these, you know, dynamics that is rapidly coming upon us where we may or may not be prepared to address, you know, that dimension of the threat. So what is Australia doing about the fact that it does have, what, 200 citizens, I think you said, that have gone to join ISIS and then others within Southeast Asia that could pose a threat to Australia? How are you thinking about dealing with these returning fighters? The first part the first part really relates to the the conflict in in the Middle East and Australia. While we've been taking all the robust domestic security measures I mentioned, has been very much at the forefront of urging uh, very robust military action against ISIL or Islamic State. I think we're still the second largest military contributor in the campaign to disrupt, degrade, and defeat ISIL. We've, uh, we've got aircraft that are conducting airstrikes in Iraq and Syria and supporting coalition airstrikes. We've got military trainers on the ground. And really from the start, uh, we've been very active in encouraging President Obama and the administration to take robust steps against ISIL because ultimately it's the power of this vision of the caliphate that I think has inspired so much of this homegrown activity and and to to sort of deflate that propaganda balloon, what's needed is very serious military reversals. And um, my personal view is that that, that campaign could have been conducted with um, somewhat more vigour, but we are starting to see results in the sense that I think 40 to 50% of the territory that ISIL took has now been recovered. Um, we're seeing a... A slowing in the flow of foreign fighters, so you know there's some encouraging progress there. But it's it's not going to be enough to deal with the threat. So we need to increase 
cooperation with uh, other governments, law enforcement, intelligence, sharing experiences around how to deal with violent extremism, improving intel sharing, um, uh, going after the financial flows that support terrorism, going after the online messaging, um, developing counter-narratives that work. I, I noticed that Minister Keenan, our new counter-terrorism minister in Australia, has just uh, just launched a, uh, a handbook of counter-narratives for Southeast Asia, which has been developed uh, between uh, Australia and regional governments, but importantly um, developed by community groups and, and non-government organisations, which again sort of highlights that this has to be a, um, a broadly based strategy rather than one that's in all circumstances government-led and that the solutions need to be tailored to, to local and, and regional specifics. And then um, just going back to laws, we've also, um, and this, this was a little more controversial in Australia, but I think very widely supported in the community, uh, the Abbott government uh, brought in laws that, um, that can strip Australian citizenship from dual nationals who are involved in terrorist activity. And as I say, this is controversial because at the end of the day, citizenship is something that we all value very highly and is very important. But the logic of the provision, I think, makes abundant sense. And that was um, for, for decades, Australia's had laws that make it a, a very serious offence for any Australian to take up arms uh, with a foreign power and fight against Australia and its allies. And there's really no um, conceptual difference at all uh, if an Australian takes up arms with ISIL or al-Nusra, a non-state organisation, and turns them on Australia or our allies. So that, that measure is also on the statute books. And it's all part of this very complex set of arrangements to deal with foreign fighters that start at our border and you know, from from um, preventing people from leaving, or getting getting parents or friends or teachers to to alert authorities that they think someone might have been radicalised or might be planning to do something silly or might be planning to leave the country, all the way through the spectrum that I talked about. Um, and as I say, I think this threat's going to get uh, get worse before it gets better. And we are going to have to constantly adapt our responses. And when you think about the way that we are dealing with it currently and how it might evolve, are there key gaps that you see in the response or maybe areas where we've started to engage or develop policies or programs, but where we really need to have more focus? I think resources are going to be a challenge. Uh, we, we quite significantly increased resources for law enforcement and for intelligence and security in Australia. Um, that's I don't think that problem is going to go away. I think we collectively, Australia, the United States and our, our partners, especially Western partners, have to do a better job of getting the um, communications industry, the telcos and other providers on board um, I, for one, found it a bit startling, perhaps as a non-American, that um, a prestigious company would refuse to make available a solution to access a, 
a mobile phone that had been used in a, a terrorist attack in the United States. Oh, you were talking about the San Bernardino Apple situation? Absolutely. Another solution was found, but I think that episode just highlighted the the gap in understanding and appreciation and cooperation, frankly, between some of the companies uh, and law enforcement. And these companies, after all, operate on a, a social contract. And to me, that's part of the social contract. But I do, of course, accept that there are you know, there are different views in different societies about civil liberties. But I, I think that we have to do better in forging stronger partnerships, definitely, with the providers. So I think, I think that's going to be fundamental. And then I think just returning to Southeast Asia, I think this is going to be a, a very serious challenge and that Australia and the United States and our other partners are going to have to work harder on building capability building capacity in countries like Indonesia, uh, Thailand, the Philippines, Malaysia. Um, all of these countries have got issues with extremism. Uh, all of them, I think, face a growing threat. There is a there is an established network of cooperation that's quite effective. Australia and Indonesia, for example, did fantastic work after the Bali bombing uh, Bali bombings and Indonesia, in fact, has taken more terrorist off, terrorists off the street than any country anywhere in the world, um, and I think doesn't doesn't get enough kudos for that. Um, but capabilities are limited in these countries, and we're all going to have to work harder to give them the skills and the training and the equipment and the know-how to defeat the threat. And that actually is a great segue to my final question, which is, you know, there has been a lot of conversation around CVE for really the past year and a half, a lot of regional meetings and summits and sharing of experiences. Do you think there's enough of an established dialogue to make those kind of partnerships real and to really build the kinds of, you know, coordination mechanisms you need to invest in those capabilities? Or are we still kind of at the front end of that process? Personally, I think we're nearer the front end. Um, I have to confess to a little scepticism about countering violent extremism, and I think... Um, you wouldn't be the first on this program. <laughs> you know, I, the way I think about this is, um, well, certainly it's not a substitute for the sort of robust law enforcement and other measures that I've talked about. I think it's a necessary complement, and it it has to work hand in glove with those other with those other tools. It has to inform the law enforcement effort and vice versa, frankly, um, if we're to be successful. I don't think anyone really claims to have found the answer to to CVE. And I've certainly never seen um, sort of ironclad uh, evidence of, of tremendous success. That said, I think uh, I think there are some uh, some countries and some some governments that that have done very well in this area or seem to be doing well. Uh, Singapore, for example, in Australia's region, has got some very sophisticated and long-standing programs that I think have have demonstrated some results. And uh, New York, for example, has a has a, a robust, um, very much community-led um, model of CVE. 
which we've certainly studied closely in Australia. The French government's done some some good work as well, and of course lots of others. I think the thing here is that we need to to be sharing lessons all the time and comparing notes on what works. We need to recognise that approaches have to be tailored and just because something works in Australia doesn't mean it's going to work in Manhattan or Jakarta or anywhere else. Um, I think increasingly our focus is on community leadership and community ownership of the problem, as it were. Governments can put out as many messages as they like, but frankly... (laughs) If it's a message from the Australian Department of Foreign Affairs or the US State Department, it's probably not going to cut it out there online. Uh, So I think finding non-government organisations that can be really effective partners and trusted partners in this area is going to be critical to the effort. And then, and this isn't a novel insight, the whole online challenge and, and just how we get our heads around this this problem. And as I said myself, I think we've been working this problem as governments and and law enforcement communities for decades in the case of um, child exploitation and sexual predators online and with some success. Uh, Of course, the problem's not not been banished by, by any means, but there has been success. And I think there are there are lessons we can take out of that techniques, technologies and so forth that we can we can adapt to this problem. But I fear, Shannon, we're nearer the end of your journey that you outlined than, than the end and um, there's lots of hard work to go. Andrew, it's been such a pleasure to have you on our podcast today and I'm sure our listeners will agree that this was a terrific and very thoughtful conversation. So thank you so much. It's a pleasure, Shannon.